Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. This episode also includes discussions of violence against children that might be particularly upsetting to some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On the night of May 19, 1983, 27-year-old Diane Downs arrived at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital in a blood-spattered Nissan Pulsar with her three young children. All four members of the Downs family had been shot. Although Diane had only a bullet wound in her arm, her children all clung to their lives. As doctors rushed to save the kids and the police arrived to investigate, they all noticed that something was off about Diane. She was calm, almost wooden, and seemed more concerned with the pain from her wounded arm than the well-being of her own children. She immediately made a phone call to her lover, Lou Lewiston, instead of checking in with the children's father, Stephen Downs. And as her children sat at the precipice of death, Diane didn't hesitate to leave the hospital with the police to show them the scene of the crime. They found several other pieces of disturbing evidence. Neighbors worried that Diane neglected her children. She'd threatened gun violence before and had an unhealthy obsession with Lou, a man who did not want children. Detectives quickly arrived at a singular conclusion. Diane had shot her own children, then turned the gun on herself to mask her crime. When Lou was interviewed, he provided a clear motive, telling police, I think Diane shot her children because of me, and I'm frightened. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we're telling the story of Diane Downs, a woman convicted of shooting her own children in 1983 in the hopes of regaining her lost relationship. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In our last episode, we talked about Diane's austere childhood. Her parents raised her to be conservatively behaved and extremely stoic, not wanting her to show any kind of emotion. As Diane grew up, she rebelled against her upbringing, wearing more fashionable clothing and cutting her hair short. When she was 15, she started dating the boy across the street, Stephen Downs. In 1973, 18-year-old Diane married Stephen to appease her father. While the marriage was ultimately an unhappy one, it did bring Diane the greatest joy of her life, motherhood. She had three biological children, Christy, born in 1974, Cheryl, born in 1976, and Danny, born in 1979, as well as a surrogate child in 1982. But while she enjoyed the attention that came from being pregnant, she was often disappointed and overwhelmed by the realities of raising children. Diane's struggle between fantasy and reality was exacerbated by her psychological issues, including histrionic personality disorder and difficulty expressing emotions in a healthy manner. She greatly inflated the importance of her relationship with Lou Lewiston. What he considered a casual fling, she believed was true, undying love. She thought it was love worth sacrificing everything for. On the night of the shooting, May 19, 1983, Detective Doug Welch interviewed Diane at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital. Welch was the responding officer that night, and this was his first homicide case. Diane told Welch that she and her children had gone to visit her friend in Marcola, a nearby town in Oregon. On their way home, she decided to take a longer route that was more scenic, even though it was growing dark. As she drove her three sleeping children down Old Mohawk Road, a deserted country road near the Mohawk River, a shaggy-haired man flagged her down, making her stop the car. Diane got out to ask what he wanted, and he demanded she give him her keys. When she refused, the man snapped, pushed her to the side, reached into the car, and shot the sleeping children. Diane then pretended to throw her car keys in the direction of the riverbank to divert the gunman's attention. They struggled for a moment, and he shot her in the arm, but she managed to get back in the car and race away to the hospital. Parts of the story didn't make sense to Welch. He said, quote, Sightseeing when it's pitch black out? And why are the kids fatally or near-fatally wounded, and she, being right-handed, is shot in the left arm? I mean, think about it. She's the biggest threat to him not three sleeping children, end quote. In addition, Diane's account of the events on Mohawk Road were inconsistent. She told Welch the man was bushy-haired, then said that he wore a ski mask. First, she said that they were attacked by one man, but then she said there had been two, then reverted back to one. Her evolving narrative is consistent with pathological lying, a common symptom in those diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder like Diane. 
Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. According to Dr. Mark D. Griffiths, patients with HPD will often lie as a way to enhance or facilitate their dramatic and attention-seeking behavior. In this case, with the dozens of police and doctors in the hospital focused on her, Diane adjusted her story to appear more dramatic as needed. While Welch took Diane's statement, doctors fought to save the three Downs children. Just a warning, we're about to talk about some violence against children, so sensitive listeners might want to skip past this section. By the time doctors could examine seven-year-old Cheryl, her blood had already started to coagulate. It was very unusual, as patients typically arrive at the ER still actively bleeding, and the hospital was not far from the site of the shooting. Doctors struggled to suction out blood clots from her throat, but she died before they could help her. Eight-year-old Christy and three-year-old Danny both clung to life as doctors worked hard to save them. Two bullets had barely missed Danny's spine, but they still feared he would be paralyzed. They saved Christy's life, but she suffered a stroke from her gunshot wounds and lost her ability to speak. Diane claimed that a killer was still at large. And so on May 20th and 21st, a countywide search took place. Police officers, dogs, and even search and rescue Boy Scouts combed the area around Marcola and Old Mohawk Road to find the shaggy-haired man and his discarded 22 caliber gun. While the search went on outside, Welch focused his attention on the survivors, Christy, Danny, and Diane, who were all still in the hospital. Diane refused to give consent for minor surgery to remove bullet fragments from Christie's shoulder, and she also wouldn't allow Christie or Danny's wounds to be photographed, which investigators found odd. However, Welch was able to witness a key interaction between Diane and Christie, their first reunion after the attack. Everyone had expected to see a tearful, heartfelt meeting between mother and daughter. Instead, what they witnessed was rife with tension. Diane walked into Christie's ICU room and stared her daughter down. With her good hand, she reached for Christie's and squeezed tightly. Diane repeated the same phrase over and over through clenched teeth. I love you, I love you. Previously, Christie's heart had been beating at 104 beats per minute. But when Diane took hold of her hand and repeated, I love you, her heart rate skyrocketed to 147 beats per minute. It was clear to Welch that Christie was afraid of her mother. Welch looked into any other suspects who were close to the children. Witnesses confirmed that neither the children's father, Stephen Downs, nor Diane's ex-lover, Lou Lewiston, could have been in Oregon on the night of May 19th. A waitress in Arizona stated that Lou had been in her restaurant that night, and Stephen was with his new girlfriend at the Mesa City Canal. However, while Lou was not a suspect, investigators didn't discount his connection to the crime. Diane's affection for him bordered on obsession. Police found her overly effusive and childish diary entries about the fantasy life she hoped to lead with Lou, a married man who did not want children. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Edition 5, more colloquially known as the DSM-5, people with histrionic personality disorder will often go to great lengths, even irrational or dangerous lengths, in order to get what they want. 
Diane had an intense need for attention and would do whatever it took to receive that attention without understanding the consequences of her actions. It was clear to Detective Welch that she had a motive for killing her children. They were standing in the way of the love and attention she desired from Lou Lewiston. In late May of 1983, a few weeks after the shooting, County Prosecutor Fred Hughie assembled a grand jury. They would decide whether or not a suspect should be indicted in the shooting. When Diane was served a subpoena to testify before this grand jury, she rejected it. It's nearly unheard of for a victim to refuse to appear before a grand jury, as their testimony is usually instrumental in proving the prosecutor's case. However, Diane felt like Hughie was attacking her by asking her to testify, and so she hired a defense attorney named Jim Jagger. As Christy and Danny continued to recuperate in the hospital, Diane told the staff not to allow detectives near her children. She even threatened to take her children out of the doctor's care, even though they were still in critical condition. With that announcement, Hughie requested a protective order to place Christy and Danny under the temporary legal guardianship of the Oregon State Children's Services Division. The state would be responsible for decisions regarding the children's medical treatment and overall well-being. The request was approved, and Christy and Danny were placed in the care of the state. Diane appealed the decision, but lost the hearing. On June 6, 1983, Diane appeared on television to talk about the shooting and the custody battle. But despite the tragedy surrounding her family, she lit up on camera, smiling brightly at the audience. Diane gave several more interviews describing the events of May 19th, and the media ate her up. She made appearances not only in Oregon, but also soon in Seattle, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and New York. Yet, she still refused to speak to detectives. Anything she had to say would be televised or in published interviews. In one taping, she mimed her interaction with the alleged gunman. But when she confused some details, she laughed, appearing to have fun with the play acting of this traumatic event. With her histrionic personality disorder, Diane craved attention more than anything else and vied for television appearances at any chance she got. She would dress herself up for extended interviews. Many reporters gave her the nickname Princess Di, spelled D-I-E instead of D-I. Diane devoured all the recognition she could get. But while she performed for any media outlet that would listen, prosecutor Fred Hughie was collecting statements of his own, carefully staging his case against her. The media would have plenty more to report on as the public saga of Diane Downs was only just beginning. Coming up, we'll see what kept Diane in the spotlight. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to the story. In June 1983, it had been little over a month since 27-year-old Diane Downs and her three young children were shot on the side of Old Mohawk Road in Oregon. Seven-year-old Cheryl died of her injuries the night of the shooting. Five weeks later, eight-year-old Christy was well enough to be released to a foster home, while three-year-old Danny continued to recover in the hospital. Prosecutor Fred Hughey felt certain of Diane's guilt, but lacked sufficient evidence. He wanted to wait to arrest her until he was positive they had enough to swiftly convict her. Christy had regained some limited speaking abilities, and Hughey hoped that she would testify about the night of the shooting. Unfortunately, she very clearly suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. According to the DSM-5, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, occurs when someone has suffered a traumatic event. Sufferers will often feel intense emotions surrounding memories of the trauma, avoid thoughts and conversations about the event, and experience intense anxiety and depression. Hughie was careful not to disturb Christy too much, for both the sake of her mental health and the investigation. Unfortunately, she was the only reliable witness to the crime, as her brother Danny was only three years old. Over the summer of 1983, while Hughie waited for Christy to be ready to speak up, he focused on locating the 22 caliber gun that had been used. Diane's ex-lover, Lou, claimed to have seen this same weapon in the trunk of her car, but now it was missing. Hughie was also determined to use a blood-soaked towel and the spatter pattern found in the car to prove that Diane was the shooter. However, he'd been left with no investigators to help bolster his case after district-wide budget cuts. He was riddled with worry over how to proceed. Hughie said, quote, How could I ever face those kids if I lost? Especially if Christy remembered later that Diane was the shooter and she could say it. Double jeopardy would attach and we'd be helpless. A truly bungled prosecution, end quote. While Hughie waited, Diane continued with her media tour. In interviews, she focused on her desire to get her children back. She called the police evil, saying that they were wrong to focus their energy on her and instead were letting a shaggy-haired killer go free. During that summer of 1983, she consistently provided enticing headlines. Diane believed that the media was on her side because they fed her need for attention. But the truth was, journalists simply ate up the juiciness of her story. On July 15th, eight weeks after the shootings, Diane requested to speak with Sheriff Dave Burks. Normally, suspects are advised against speaking directly with the authorities, especially without an attorney present. But Diane's actions throughout the investigation were emotionally driven and often based on false logic, symptomatic of her histrionic personality disorder. In her mind, if she simply expressed her concerns about the investigation to Burks, he would be moved to help her. She told Burks that she believed the Oregon State Children's Services Division was taking explicit action to brainwash her children, rendering them emotionally handicapped so that the state could earn an additional $260 a month. She insisted he investigate the CSD, despite having no evidence to support her claims. Burks was in shock. 
He couldn't believe that a suspect was speaking directly to him, let alone with such a ludicrous idea. Diane countered with another interview a few days later. She told the Springfield News that Burks had called her press conferences and media appearances a charade. She retorted by saying, quote, if they want to call what I'm doing a charade, well, I'd call this investigation a charade, end quote. But all the while, Diane's story continued to change. She revised her description of the shaggy-haired man, saying that his face was thinner than she had previously described. She also claimed to remember that the killer wasn't a stranger. In fact, she recognized his face, but she wouldn't say his name or how she knew him. In her new account, Diane insisted she was both followed by a yellow car and that a strange man ran in front of her car to flag her down. She said that the shooter knew her name and threatened to kill her if she told anyone, which is why she didn't tell authorities initially. Diane also spoke of a time lapse in her memory. She now had trouble remembering the exact moment her children were shot, saying she thought her mind had blocked out the details of a horrible thing she saw. She just couldn't remember what that horrible thing was. But all these blank spaces in her retelling only made it harder for Diane to be defended. If she couldn't provide a consistent explanation, how could the defense tell her side of the story? Despite the press attention, Diane was lonely. She had no children, and more importantly to her, no boyfriend, until she met Matt Jensen. They met in late July in a park in Oregon, struck up a conversation, then a friendship, and then a casual romance. Matt had heard about the Downs shooting, but he didn't think much of it. He knew that Diane needed someone to talk to, and he felt comfortable being that person for her. On October 13, 1983, Diane wrote in her diary, quote, I've been drinking a lot the past few days. I just wish I could be dead, but I had a great idea. Tell you later if it works. Gotta go. End quote. That night, Diane called Matt and insisted on going to his home, even though he said no. They spent the night together, and the next day she wrote in her diary, quote, It worked. Remember that guy I dated a couple of times? Well, I called him up and ended up going to see him. I talked him into doing you-know-what, because I knew it was my time of the month to get pregnant. I hope it worked. I just can't live without my kids. End quote. As she had done before, Diane turned to pregnancy as the one thing that would feed the hole she felt inside. She later told TV reporter Anne Bradley, quote, You can't replace children, but you can replace the effect that they give you. Love, satisfaction, stability. They give me a reason to live and a reason to be happy. And that's gone. But children are so easy to conceive. End quote. Diane saw children, and love in general, as easily replaceable. She simply needed to trade one person in for another. Even as she was suspected of killing one child, she began her sixth pregnancy with another. When Matt discovered she was pregnant in late October, he rejected her. But she didn't care, fulfilled and content with the love of her growing baby. Little did she know... While she was growing a new life, prosecutor Fred Hughie's grand jury was meeting with everyone surrounding her case. Even those closest to her, including her parents and Lou, provided testimony. In addition, Hughie's patience paid off and Christy finally opened up to a child psychologist. 
she had gained enough verbal strength to speak and enough emotional strength to identify her mother as the shooter. This collective testimony provided enough evidence against Diane to lead to her indictment for murder, attempted murder, and assault in the first degree. On February 28, 1984, over nine months since the shooting and five months into her new pregnancy, Diane Downs was arrested and charged with the murder of one of her children and the attempted murder of her two other children. No one stepped forward to post her $75,000 bail, so she was held in jail. The trial was set to start on May 8, 1984. As Fred Hughie prepped 24 volumes of evidence, Diane's attorney, Jim Jagger, worked to calibrate her facial expressions for trial. According to a study done at McGill University by John B. Martin and R.O. Peel, the inability to express emotion, otherwise known as alexithymic characteristics, is often a part of a physical stress response. So even though Diane didn't look upset, it might have been her body's way of reacting to the stress of the trial and of her trauma. In addition, Diane's father encouraged her to hide her sadness behind a stoic facade from a young age. Because of that, she always had trouble reacting to situations in the ways people expected her to. When it would be more appropriate for her to look sad, she usually looked happy and would even laugh. Jagger tried to explain this to Diane, but she had no idea what he was talking about. Her odd and erratic emotions would be obvious to the jury, so Jagger decided to use that to his advantage in defending her. Jagger argued that Diane had endured such a hard life that her emotional quirks were inevitable and forgivable. When the trial began, Diane was seven months pregnant. With her small stature and round belly, she looked like a sweet young mother. But Hughie did not let the jury become too swayed by Diane's appearance. He used the many diary entries and letters found by police in Diane's home to show the jury her devotion turned obsession for Lou. He had 50 witnesses backing up his claim that Diane was driven mad by lust. A driver who was behind the Downs car on her way to the hospital on May 19th testified that he saw her Nissan rolling down the road at an exceptionally slow speed, enough so that he had to slow to around five miles an hour behind her. Neighbors testified that the children were often sent to school hungry and without proper winter clothes. Hughie countered Jagger's poor childhood defense by making the case that she had perpetuated the cycle of abuse she had experienced as a child. A 2001 study from the Oregon Social Learning Center showed that parents who had been abused in childhood were significantly more likely to engage in abusive behavior toward their children. Hughie used the same logic to explain Diane's behavior. She had suffered, and now she made her children suffer as well. Hughie led the prosecution through the months of evidence he had collected. Diane's conflicting accounts of the events of May 19th, Diane's extremely slow journey from Mohawk Road to the hospital, the 22 caliber bullets that were found at the crime scene, and the 22 caliber gun that Lou had seen in Diane's car. And then Hughie called his star witness, Diane's daughter, Christy Downs. When she entered the courtroom, her gaze met Diane's. Both mother and daughter began to cry. 
Prosecutor Fred Hughie was kind and gentle in his questioning. He felt deep affection and sympathy for Christy and was careful about how he got this key testimony from her. In the months leading up to the trial, Christy had worked with a child psychologist. He helped her slowly speak up, recalling more and more details about the night of the shooting until she was prepared to sit at the witness stand. According to a 2005 study from Harvard University, psychological professionals sometimes discount how much PTSD victims can remember. Often victims are diagnosed with traumatic dissociative amnesia, which would hinder their ability to remember events. Yet, according to the study, these claims are almost always unfounded. Trauma victims are able to accurately recall much more than people normally give them credit for, and Christie was no exception. Christy told Hughie that her mother drove down Old Mohawk Road, pulled over, and got something from the trunk. She then continued driving until they reached a remote spot on the riverbank, where she pulled over and shot the three children. Jagger tried to discredit Christy. He kept her on the witness stand all afternoon, asking her repetitive questions, trying to prove she confused details of May 19th with those of another night. But Christy was resolute. She knew what she knew, that her mother and no one else had shot her and her siblings. As the trial continued, Diane seemed to avoid being mentally present. While Christy testified, or the police presented her children's bloodied clothes as evidence, Diane doodled on a pad of paper in front of her. According to Christie's testimony, she remembered hearing Diane's favorite song, Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf, playing from the tape deck of the car when the children were shot. After investigating the car, detectives noted that the tape deck only played while the car was running. Diane had repeated several times that she distracted the gunmen by pretending to throw her keys. But if that were true, how could the tape have been playing while the children were shot? Prosecutors saw this discrepancy as an opportunity to use physical evidence to demonstrate for the jury how violent and terrible this crime really was. They constructed a life-sized model of Diane's car and even made replicas of the three children. Forensic scientist James O. Pex spent hours during the trial demonstrating the specifics of the car tape deck, that the car had to be turned on for the stereo to work, he also explained the many patterns of blood spatter all over the car. From his findings, he was absolutely convinced that the shooter had fired from the driver's seat. At one point during this reenactment, a court clerk wheeled in a stereo and played Hungry Like the Wolf. As the music began, all eyes in the courtroom were on Diane. If this was the song that played while her children were shot, would it not trigger some sort of visceral negative reaction from Diane? The lyrics trilled, I'm on the hunt, I'm after you, I'm hungry like the wolf. And Diane's face stretched into a big, broad smile. Diane had written in her diary that she loved that song, especially because it reminded her of her relationship with Lou. Diane danced in her seat and mouthed the lyrics as they were sung. The courtroom was silent as jurors watched her snap her fingers and tap her feet to the song, all while looking upon a recreation of the night her children got shot. It was a damning image that would be hard to overcome in the minds of the jury. But Diane had one more chance. It was now her turn 
to take the witness stand. Up next, we'll hear Diane's testimony and the conclusion of her trial. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1984, 28-year-old Diane Downs stood trial for the murder and attempted murders of her three young children. After her oldest daughter, Christy, gave emotional testimony against her, Diane took the stand to defend herself. She spent an unprecedented four and a half days being questioned by both her lawyer, Jim Jagger, and prosecutor, Fred Hughie. Jagger was faced with the difficult task of defending a client who presented discrepancies in her story, even while on the witness stand. It was a challenge to even make sense of what she said in court, let alone use it as a defense. Jagger also had to deal with a client who was incapable of normal emotional reactions. As Diane finished telling Jagger one account of the shooting, he noted that she wasn't crying. She said she wasn't simply because there was nothing she could do about it now. While Jagger harped on details with Diane, Hughie hoped to highlight how untrustworthy her side of the story was. He said, quote, We knew Diane was not going to confess on the stand. The goal of cross-examination was to try to let the jury see her under some stress, to see her convoluted reasoning, inconsistencies, and the improbability of her story, to show the development of her antisocial personality, end quote. And it worked. While Jagger tried to question the validity of memory as evidence and called young Christie's testimony a performance, Hughie was backed by countless pieces of evidence and sound rebuttals of Diane's claims. One of Hughie's strongest final arguments came in the form of a piece of physical evidence, the blood-stained towel found in the car the night of the shooting. Hughie carefully folded and unfolded the towel, displaying the pattern of blood soaked through it. He posited that Diane had prepared it for herself before the shooting. The pattern of blood on the towel perfectly showed how Diane had pressed it into her own self-inflicted wound while her children bled in the back seat on the leisurely drive to the hospital. It was the visual the jury needed to understand the true horror of this crime. On June 17, 1984, over one year since the shootings, the jury reached a unanimous verdict. Diane was found guilty of one count of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of first-degree assault. She smiled as the verdict was read and continued smiling as she was taken out of the courtroom in handcuffs. 
10 days after the guilty verdict, Diane gave birth to a baby girl. She named her Amy Elizabeth Downs, held her tightly for a few precious moments, and then relinquished her to the state. At Diane's sentencing hearing two months later, the judge made it clear that he hoped she would never see the outside of a prison cell. He sentenced her to life in prison, plus 50 years. With Diane behind bars for life, prosecutor Fred Hughie and his wife decided to adopt Christy and Danny. They had become so attached to the children over the course of the investigation and trial that they wanted to bring them into their family. Along with sentencing her to life in prison, the Oregon court diagnosed Diane with three personality disorders, histrionic, antisocial, and narcissistic. As we've discussed, people with histrionic personality disorder will go to great lengths to draw attention to themselves, as Diane often did. Antisocial and narcissistic personality disorder were two new diagnoses for Diane. According to the DSM-5, people diagnosed as antisocial have a pattern of disregard for the rights of others. The more severe symptoms, such as a total lack of remorse and extreme deceitfulness and recklessness, will lead to sociopathy, which many saw as a trait of Diane's. Diane had trouble understanding the consequences of her actions. She created extreme instability in her family's life, such as the constant stream of different men she brought into her children's home because of her multiple affairs and pregnancies. After the trial, this could all now be attributed to her antisocial personality disorder. She was also diagnosed as a narcissist. According to the DSM-5, people with narcissistic personality disorder are usually self-centered, manipulative, and demanding. They'll be preoccupied with fantasies of success, and these unrealistic fantasies will often lead to unreasonable expectations. We can look at Diane's entire history with men, especially her fraught obsession with Lou, in a new light given this diagnosis. The fantasy that she would live a perfect life with a man who was already married was clearly not realistic. After the trial, Diane still saw herself as a martyr. She believed she'd been wrongfully arrested and that she had every right to lead a free life. It became another fantasy to obsess over. After three years in prison, Diane escaped from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center on July 11, 1987. Security was immediately tightened around Christy and Danny for fear that Diane might try to reach out to them or worse, hurt them. A nationwide manhunt was launched. Authorities tirelessly searched for Diane, who had somehow scaled an 18-foot wall and left the prison grounds. Ten days later, on July 21st, she was found just blocks from the prison. Police discovered the impressions of a hand-drawn map leading from the prison to an address on a notepad in her cell. Her old habits had emerged. She was in a house with four men, reveling in their attention. Diane was recaptured and sentenced to an additional five years in prison for her escape. She was also moved to the New Jersey Department of Corrections Clinton Correctional Institution all the way across the country. That same year, Anne Rule published the book Small Sacrifices about Diane and the entire case of the shooting. Two years later, in 1989, it was adapted into a TV movie starring Farrah Fawcett as Diane. 
Perhaps in response to other people telling her story, Diane published her own book in 1989 called Best Kept Secrets. The back cover reads, quote, Mrs. Downs gives a chilling first-hand account of how she and her children were cut down by an assailant's bullets, only to find themselves further victimized by the Oregon state legal system, end quote. The book contained more of Diane's contradictions and conspiracy theories about the authorities vilifying her. She still believed that she had been wronged. In 1989, Diane told the Los Angeles Times, quote, My children are part of my body that broke away. They love me, but at the same time, they're uncomfortable with ever being with me again, end quote. Which is exactly why Diane would be so delighted when the daughter she gave birth to after being convicted reached out to her. Amy Elizabeth had been adopted by Chris and Jackie Babcock, a chemist and stay-at-home mom, who were dedicated to being the best possible parents. They renamed her Rebecca, Becky for short. Becky Babcock had an idyllic childhood in Bend, Oregon. But as she grew older, she began wondering about the identity of her birth mother. She started pestering family and close friends to find the answer she so desired. Finally, when she was 11 years old, a babysitter let it slip that Becky's birth mother was the murderer, Diane Downs. Becky didn't learn much more about Diane until her teen years. Her boyfriend showed her the Farrah Fawcett TV movie. Becky was overcome with disgust and sadness as she watched the horrific story of the family she came from. Becky said, quote, It became real at that point, the part that shows when I was born. It's as close as I'd ever come to witnessing my own birth. And to be born of a monster is not something I'm proud of, end quote. After discovering the truth about Diane, Becky was devastated and had difficulty forming her own healthy identity. She spiraled out of control, dropped out of high school, and began using hard drugs. It got so bad that Becky's adoptive mother kicked her out of the house. Those closest to Becky wondered if nature was overpowering nurture, and Becky was destined to become just like Diane. By age 20, Becky was pregnant and living in a homeless shelter. She was struggling with the decision to put the baby up for adoption. Becky knew it was the right choice for the baby, but she felt like a piece of her was missing. Then she realized there was only one person who could directly relate to the feeling of giving up a child, Diane Downs. Becky wrote to Diane in prison and was met with love and tenderness. In an appearance on The Oprah Winfrey Show years later, Becky said, quote, she related to some of the things that I had written to her. She had been excited that I contacted her and she said that she always knew I would. End quote. However, as Becky and Diane continued to talk, Diane's old ways came through. When Becky asked about her birth father, Diane threw a tantrum over the question. Because of her narcissistic personality, Diane was incapable of understanding why her daughter would want or need anything other than Diane herself. She was convinced that it was their unique maternal connection that had brought Becky back into her life at all. Becky soon became concerned by the things Diane wrote her. Becky said, quote, Her letters started to be conspiracy theories. She believed that she was being kept in prison to be kept safe, end quote. Becky was scared. She could tell that Diane did not have a grasp on reality. 
after Diane told her that people had been watching Becky over the course of her life and were trying to kill her, she asked Diane to stop writing her. Diane was outraged and accused Becky of plotting to kill her. With that accusation, Becky realized that her birth mother was, in fact, the monster everyone thought she was. She cut all ties and moved on with her life, eventually getting married and giving birth to a son. Diane was eligible for parole in 2008. In her statement to the parole board, she said, quote, Over the years, I've told you and the rest of the world that a man shot me and my children. I have never changed my story, end quote. But her parole was denied. Lane County District Attorney Douglas Harselroad wrote to the parole board, quote, Downs continues to fail to demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior. Even after her convictions, she continues to fabricate new versions of events under which the crimes occurred, end quote. Diane applied again in December 2010. Even during this hearing, Diane continued to assert that she was innocent. She spoke about the events of the night of May 19, 1983, with chilling indifference. Diane used an odd logic to defend herself. Instead of drawing from a mother's emotions or referencing facts, she said that if she had committed the crimes, she would have done it in a much more efficient manner. In her parole hearing, Diane said, quote, There are so many other ways to accomplish such a horrific deed. If I was going to do it, I'm certainly bright enough to figure out another way besides some way that looks so absolutely insane and hokey that nobody would believe it. I'm not dumb, end quote. Diane was once again denied parole. She'll be eligible to apply again in 2020 at 65 years old. Diane Downs spent her life in search of love. Love from men, love from her children, love from the public. Yet that love never fulfilled her the way she hoped it would, even after she went to the most terrifying extremes imaginable. All the men in her life, from Stephen to Lou, have moved on and away from her. Becky, just like her half-siblings, Christy and Danny, now lives a life free of Diane. She says that being taken away from her mother was the best thing that could have ever happened to her. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Sarah Halley Corey and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 